we have this idea in our heads that if we have a really tough emotion, that it might kill us and it might always be there. Mm-hmm. And so we, we hot potato away our tough emotions. Grief, shame, right? Don't let me feel yeah. it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Don't want that. So we hot potato it away. But the problem is the hot potatoing away doesn't mean it's not still in our body mm-hmm. and it comes out in other ways. And if we allow ourselves, really allow ourselves to experience the full emotion, it always shifts mm-hmm. in about 90 seconds. Yeah. It's fascinating and it's kind of mind-blowing, even the toughest emotions like grief, for example. Hello, and welcome to the Emotional Expedition Podcast. I'm Meg Thomas, and if you want to live a more open-hearted, magical life, it all starts with your emotions. This podcast will take you on a journey, helping you to better understand, express, release, and heal your emotions. Let's get exploring. Welcome back. I am so excited to introduce you to a new friend, Brenda Winkle. And Brenda, she is an energy expert. She is an empowerment coach, an advanced theta healing meditation technique practitioner. She's a healer. And she is also the host of the Waves of Joy podcast, which I have been diving deep into this week. And I will have all of the links in the show notes. It's an amazing, amazing podcast. So I definitely want to share that with you. And I cannot wait to share Brenda and all of her beautiful magic that she has to share with us today. So welcome, Brenda. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Meg. And Mm. I agree. This new friendship that we have begun to nurture is so exciting and just feels so aligned. There's so many commonalities, so many synchronicities. It just kind of blows my mind. And I'm just so grateful that our worlds came together. Mm, Me too. Me too. And hopefully we will share some of that with all of you, how many things we just keep finding we have in common. So (laughs) how... I like to start this podcast is taking you back to the beginning. So what was young Brenda like? What were you like as a child? What, how did you deal with your emotions? Did you deal with them? How did you experience them? Mm, I felt like a nerd Mm. the whole time I was growing up. I was pretty good at school. It came easily for me. I was identified as gifted at a young age. And I felt a little different. I always had friends. Friends came easily to me. But I enjoyed going fluidly between friend groups. I did not enjoy having to pick one group of friends. I liked to be friends with everybody. And so I don't recall emotionality in the way that I experience it now. Mm -hmm. I recall worry, like worrying about my friends. And I don't feel like I necessarily had a desire to fit in as much as make sure everyone was okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it says a lot about you 
does that still live within you of wanting to make sure the people around you are okay? And you became a coach, so yeah, (laughs) and a healer. It is still within me. I do think that now it is a little healthier and in a more boundaried place where I'm not offering unsolicited advice in the same way that I might have as a kid or even a young adult. And I think that I no longer want everyone to be okay at my own expense. And so sometimes that manifested as walking on eggshells in family situations, the wanting to be okay part. Mm -hmm. And in friendships, I always felt a little bit on the outside, which is really interesting because, right, I floated between the friend groups and I identified as a friend with all those people. Like I felt like I was their friend. I felt like they were my friends. And yet I didn't feel close to very many. Hmm. Would you have labeled yourself as sensitive as a child? 100%. Yes. What did that look like? Well, you know, I think. In kindergarten, I remember laughing. Like I always picked up emotions of people around me and I didn't realize that that was something not everybody did. And I remember laughing hysterically with a new friend in kindergarten. And, you know, little kids getting the giggles and it's just riotously funny for no particular reason other than you're laughing. And I remember it was the first day of school and we were both sent to the hall for laughing. And so I learned very quickly that laughter was not okay in the school setting because that was a really profound moment for me. Oh my gosh, I got separated from my friends for laughing. Mm. And so that was an interesting experience. And the, the weird thing now reflecting back is I didn't assign a value to that. I wasn't like sad about it. It was just like, oh, okay, this is not safe at school. And then in first grade, I remember at the end of the year, I really loved my first grade teacher. And she had a a serious health problem. And my mom ended up being our substitute teacher for 10 weeks. And then the teacher came back. And so because of all of this, my mom and the teacher had formed a relationship and a friendship. And my teacher tried to give me a hug on the last day of school. And I didn't want to have a hug. And I dived under a desk to avoid getting the hug. (laughs) And I actually cracked my head open on a desk, diving from this hug that I didn't want to have from a teacher. And so I learned in like really early school years that this type of emotionality and showing preferences may not be safe. Mm. And so I felt like I kind of put some bookends on the range of emotions that I was willing to show for certain and perhaps even feel as a young child. Makes total sense. You were just picking up the energy of the environment, what's safe, what's not safe, and making those decisions of how far you can go. I love that visual of the bookends. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so What was the next part of the journey for you as you continued to grow up and were this sensitive, beautiful person in the world, in a world that doesn't always accept us as these sensitive beings that we are? 
Well, thankfully, my parents were both musicians, professional musicians, and I was raised in a family where it was not optional (laughs) to study music. And so I started piano lessons at the same time I started kindergarten. Mm. And I always had music and it became my main expressive vehicle. And as I continued into school in junior high, I became active in the band and the choir and carried that through the rest of my public school experience. In fact, my senior year of high school, out of the seven periods of the day, four were music. Hmm. That was like me with art. I love that. Was And when you say it was your main way to express yourself, was that also a way of expressing your emotions? Oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. So my mom says that she could always tell what kind of day I had based on what I would come home and play really? or sing. And so, you know, she could tell if I was just pounding the piano that it had been kind of a tough day. And she could tell if it was a lighter, maybe a Broadway tune that I was singing or playing that it had been a great day. And I did not have the self-awareness at the time to know any different. I just knew that I felt really compelled to play certain music on certain days. Mm. And does music still have that effect on you in the sense of what I'm hearing is it helped you move the emotions through your body. So if you were having a tough day and you came and chose to play something and then I'm imagining you felt better after, does music still have that kind of power with you? Absolutely. It's a big part of the reason that I spent 26 years in a music education profession. And I'm still active in like volunteer roles and, and finding different ways to serve the profession as an adjudicator and a clinician. And there's always music playing in my house if I'm going through something. And I'm singing it and dancing it or conducting it. or <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. yes. So music is still very much a part of my process. Mm, I love that. Just another way, another way to move the emotions. And how did you find, now that you've shared, you've been in that industry for 26 years, how did you find yourself becoming this incredible empowerment coach that you are now today? How did you get to that place? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. So many times in life, there's not a straight line. Mm. And this was not a straight line. I knew that I wanted to be a music teacher, although I also wanted to be a psychologist and an interior decorator and and some other things too. But I really settled on the music teacher and decided I would do that. Well, I left an abusive marriage in 2007. And when I became a single mom, I needed another income. And so I had been a Mary Kay sales director at the time that I left that abusive marriage and moved into a domestic violence shelter. And I took all of my product with me with the intention of being able to continue to run that business. Mm -hmm. But you know, the reality of running a home-based business inside of a domestic violence shelter (laughs) is not really practical and Mm -hmm. it didn't work. And I also knew that I needed a W-2 job to be able to rent an apartment because my Mary Kay business didn't have the the tax records that would have been necessary to rent an apartment. So I got the W-2 job. I went back to teaching. I had taken a year off 
when we moved to Boise and went back to teaching, but it was a 60% of full-time position. So 0.6. So if you take 60% of a teacher salary in Idaho, which at the time was 51st in the nation for wages, oh, yeah, I could not make ends meet mm-hmm. with just that salary. And so I fired up another idea and I became a photographer. And so I was working as a teacher and then working as a photographer and I loved it. And I loved family photography. I did weddings for a while. I did pets. I volunteered for their animal rescues around doing pet photos. And then I discovered women's glamour photography and it just lit my heart on fire. I loved it. I loved the conversation and the connections and the relationships. And what I found was the part that, I mean, I loved the actual photography, but the part that lit me up was the conversation before or after the session where the people would just sit at my table and talk with me. And I found that I was really good at coaching. And so I just kind of had my antenna up for what could I do that might sort of allow me to do this more? And I had discovered yoga kind of somewhat simultaneously in this process. And I loved yoga so much that I asked the local studio that I was in to bring a teacher into our school and that we would pay her by the class to come teach in my classroom. And that woman, her name is Rachel McGrath. She's still a dear friend. And it's just wonderful to to have all these connections from all these years. So Rachel came into my school and was teaching yoga. And there was a teacher that taught two doors down from me named Kathy. And somehow we got to talking about massage therapy. And I was saying I was looking for someone kind of close by the school so I could get there quickly after school. And she handed me a business card. And on it, it said Reiki. And I said, oh, I've heard of Reiki, but I don't really know what it is. And she said, well, why don't I treat you to a session? Come on in and I'll give you a session. And so I went in for my first Reiki session, which I'm sure that you've talked about Reiki on your podcast. Not a lot yet, actually. Oh, okay. And I myself am a Reiki practitioner, so it hasn't come up much. So go wherever you you are bringing us. We're with you. Awesome. Awesome. So Reiki is a Japanese form of energy healing. And from that one session, I signed up to become a Reiki practitioner and then signed up for Reiki to attunement and then signed up for the Reiki master program. And within a year, I was a Reiki master and I thought, okay, this is my pivot. And I just loved it. (laughs) And so that was really the twisty turny path to becoming a healer. And I didn't feel like I was coaching at the time. I was really focused on the Reiki. So I got some more training under my belt and ended up with a master's degree in educational leadership and the Theta Healing certifications and and mm-hmm. all of those things, and then put it together into what is now my current my current business. Mm. What a beautiful beautiful journey! And <laughs> yeah, we have so many overlaps. We have this Mary Kay overlap. This photography mm-hmm. turned into Reiki. I mean, just mm-hmm. so many beautiful moments. And for me, my first Reiki experience. I just started crying. I was like, I don't, I don't know what's happening here. So same thing. I, it took me a little bit longer though than you, a few sessions before I was like, oh, I need to do this. 
So I love that you were like, okay, yep, I'm in. Let me let me figure this out. <laughs> and And to do that within one year, that's really, really remarkable. I know that you have shared this openly about the courage and finding that courage to be able to leave an abusive relationship. Would you mind sharing some of that journey and I imagine just so many of the emotions and or maybe you weren't even allowing yourself to feel the emotions at that time. That could be the case as well. I would, if you are open to sharing that part of your story. Thank oh, you. absolutely. Yeah. To your question about was I allowing emotions at the time? That's an interesting question because I think that there was really only one emotion that I gave myself permission to feel, and that was anger. Mm. Sometimes I would feel angry, but it's interesting when I try to conjure other emotions, I, I can't. Mm -hmm. I don't recall feeling joy. I don't recall feeling really much other than anger and then sometimes fear. And so those were the two predominant emotions that I was living with most of the time. And then as I discovered Mary Kay and I began, began to attend the, the weekly meetings, that began to shift. And so as I'm reflecting, like right now in real time on the emotions, it was the joy and the sisterhood and the feeling of belonging that I felt inside that container with Mary Kay that was so impactful. And I think that that is a big part of the reason why I was able to recognize the contrast between how I was feeling with those women and their husbands or partners or families and how well they were treated and how well they treated me and the contrast between home. But even then, I was not aware fully that I was in an abusive marriage. I knew I was in an unhappy marriage. I knew that there was conflict. Often there was conflict. But I grew up in a small town in northwestern Nebraska, and the social norm was till death do you part. And mm -hmm. it was really expected. And, you know, we knew who had been through a divorce in the town. And there was always this this talk around it. And so I internalized some shame around getting divorced and it was never even an option for me. And then add to that the fact that, that the person I was married to told me I would never survive a divorce. So I just tabled the idea completely. And one particular sales call I was on, I had won a trip to the Bahamas with my Mary Kay national sales director. And it was going to cost airfare, which in the consideration of all the things. It was really not a lot of money, but it was a really big deal for my ex-husband. And it, it led to a major, a major altercation. And so in the next sales call, I told my national sales director, I can't go. It's just not going to work. And I thought I was playing it pretty cool. And she asked to speak to me at the end of the call. And she said, you need professional help. The things that you're talking about and the things that you're giving up are not normal and you need professional help. And I didn't feel great. It was kind of embarrassing. And I, I, not even kind of, I was embarrassed and I was a little also insulted 
Like, are you kidding me? Who says that? (laughs) But I also respected her so much that I just kind of filed it away. And then the next day or next week, it's a little blurry right now, but it was in a really short period of time. I was setting up for an event local to me with a local sales director, a different person. And I ended up taking my daughter and we were setting up the tables in this Holiday Inn ballroom and my daughter was playing with her little ponies and we were making it all pretty and nice for the consultants to come in the next day. And I thought it was a great afternoon. Like I felt really lit up by the conversation and it just felt great. Later that night, the phone rang and it was this local sales director. And she said, what else are you going to let him take away from you? And I said, what? And she said, I know what's happening in your house. And my first thought, because of how I I was being conditioned at the time was, oh my gosh, you know, there's dishes in the sink. And I went into that shame place of there's dishes in the sink, which who cares in the course of things now. And she said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I know what's happening in your home because I've lived in a home like that. And I just felt my body go cold. Like I still have a really visceral memory of the texture of the chair I was sitting in and what it felt like on my fingers as I put my fingers on the arms of the chair. And it was this sort of like out of body experience, so to speak of, oh my gosh, now in a really short period of time, two women I really respect have said something that kind of caught me off guard. And so this woman also said, you need professional help. And this woman and I were close enough friends that I could say to her, I don't even know what that looks like. I don't even know where to go. And she said, that's fine. I have someone for you. So she gave me the number and I went to this woman's office and and um, we sat down for our session and she was writing in, in a little a portfolio, you know, where you can't see what they're writing, but you can you can see that they're writing on paper. <laughs> and at the end of our session, she closed it. And she she closed her little portfolio and she kind of sat back a little bit and she said, I never counsel divorce. And like I could feel my heart rate rise just with that statement. And she said, but you need an exit plan. You're in a lot of danger. And I was like, I was very scared for the first time. I'd been insulted and sort of trying to prove the people wrong that suggest that I needed help. But I also respected them enough. I was trying to go through the motions of going Mm. to this therapist. But when she said I needed an exit plan, that was the first time I was really scared. And so I drove home and it was so interesting because it was crystal clear in the parking lot what she had said. And then it began to get a little bit blurrier. And I started to think, I bet she's wrong. I bet it's not that big a deal. I bet it's, it's it's not that bad. But I decided I should call somebody else. And, you know, at the time, every time you made an order with Mary Kay, they would send a little pink slippery envelope that you could do product returns in. And it had the Mary Kay Ash Charitable Foundation's number on the back that linked to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Mm-hmm. And so it was like right there on my floorboard. So I just pulled over in a little park next to a neighborhood where I lived and called the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Gave them a rundown, pretty generic rundown. And they said the same thing. You need an exit plan. And I was like, oh, okay, this is really scary. I don't quite know what this means. I don't know what to do. 
And so I went right back into denial thinking, okay, I bet it's not that bad. I bet it's not this big a deal. I'm going to prove them all wrong now. So I went and bought a little digital recorder, like one of the four inches by two inches. And I wore it in my bra for two weeks. My ex-husband was working nights. And so he would be up kind of in the window of like 4 to 6 p.m. and then head to work. And so I would wear it the whole time we were having exchanges. And then while he went to work, I would listen to it. And it took me like three days of listening to realize I was really in trouble. Mm. And I was, it's partially gaslighting because it's so confusing when you're in that situation because you say that this hurts and they talk you out of it and tell you it's not that and, and those kind of things. And then it's partially the numbing that has to happen as a survival mechanism that I just hadn't allowed myself to really feel what all those barbed kinds of things were doing. Mm-hmm. And then when I heard my daughter, that really drove it home. So from the time I went to the counselor, called the domestic violence hotline, started wearing the recordings, it was two weeks later that I was in a car with $400, two suitcases, and my five-year-old. and a friend drove us to a shelter. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I, it's such a powerful story, and I just want to be able to, a part of being on this podcast and, and why I'm doing this is, is to show people the stories and the, how to get there and how to gather that courage because I'm hearing in it also, there was a part of you that had to numb yourself and probably not allow yourself to feel that full range of mo- of emotions. That was mm-hmm. just a way of protecting yourself. So here we are mm-hmm. on this podcast, always talking about emotions, but this is a way of protection. When you are in mm-hmm. the trauma, when you are in it, this is a way that that our minds and our bodies protect ourselves, right? Right. How did you find that courage within you to ultimately be able to pack those two suitcases and leave? I think that it was the perfect meeting of all of the things. Mm -hmm. I think that it was timing, it was support from the sales director, my national sales director. And the the friend who was my director that drove me there. And I think that they were willing to have the conversation with me mm-hmm. and also willing to physically drive me Yeah, made me realize how much, number one, they believed in me. Number two, how much they believed that I was in trouble. Mm-hmm. Because, here, you know, the, the part that we haven't really talked about is when things started to go bad, they went bad very, very early. But as I shared things with people, I would hear responses like, oh, that's not what he meant. Mm. Or you're taking it too seriously. Yeah. Or maybe you're just being sensitive. Mm. And so I had learned early in the marriage that I couldn't talk to people outside of the marriage Yeah, because it was getting turned back on me and I was the liability. I was the weak link. And so when this group of people were able to diagnose me sort of from the outside and then believe me, it was so empowering. And, you know, they, 
they were really careful. And one even articulated, I am not a counselor. I am not equipped to help you with what you need to go through now. And you can't come live with me because I don't have the capacity to give you what you need, Mm -hmm. but I will help you get to a shelter. And that was the kindest thing that she could have done. And at the time, I was sort of like, please let me live with you. Please don't make me go to a shelter. That's not what I want. But, you know, in the shelter, I really did have the resources. I had daily therapy, daily therapy for weeks. And then it broke into weeks, like, weekly therapy and then monthly therapy mm-hmm. and and not to count group therapy which happens several times a week so it was like immediate resources yeah. were at my hands and i didn't even know what i needed at mm. the time and so it was such a gift that she recognized her own limitations because it could have really turned out differently because yeah. i was still not really wanting to do the therapy mm-hmm. cuz you don't want to when you really need it, yeah, really. Right? Yeah. And so beautiful, the coach that you've become. Because when I think about, I'm always working with coaches as well. And how I end up making that decision of who I work with, it's can they hold a vision for me that I am not yet holding for myself? Like a bigger mm-hmm. vision. Can they see even with my limited sense of me not being able to see that much. And it's like, that's what these women were doing for you was they were showing you the contrast, which I think was huge. So allowing you to see, "Mm, yeah, this doesn't feel right. And then holding that space for you. And Mm -hmm. what a beautiful example of setting a healthy boundary from your friend of saying, I will do all the things, but you can't live here. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful example of boundary setting. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And Waves of Joy. I don't know how you ended up with Waves of Joy podcast. I would love to know. But (laughs) what I'm picking up on is if you experience this time in your life where you were mostly accessing anger and fear there was not room for joy. So now in this part of your life, so how did we end up with the Waves of Joy podcast? People who knew me even inside the marriage always said that I had a very positive outlook. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to hear that reflected back because I didn't always feel very positive at the time. But since then, I've really acknowledged that I am able to access joy in a lot of different situations. And it is kind of a superpower of mine to be able to find the joy in a way that's not spiritually bypassing emotions or ignoring things, but actually finding true joy even when things are hard. Mm -hmm. And so in my photographer days, I met a bunch of photographers and we had a local photog headshot swap, which is a mouthful to say. And I met Cam Neth at one of these headshot swaps and I became friends with her, followed her on social media. And last year she had this thing and she said, I'm coming out to Oregon to do a photo shoot on the coast. And I was like, sign me up. And she's like, oh, that's right. You're in Portland. You could you could come out really easily. And so we made a plan and I told her kind of what my vision was for the 
business and I knew I wanted this podcast, but I didn't have a name for it. And we met at the coast and I had my colors and I knew I wanted this vibrant pink as part of my colors. And so I was on the beach in Yahats, Oregon, and we were laughing and running among the waves and she's got her camera and she brought a coffee and we just were having so much fun. And she said, you know, it occurs to me that maybe you need something about the ocean in your podcast because you love the ocean so much. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that seems like that makes sense. And I want it to be something about joy. And she's like, well, why not waves of joy? (laughs) So easy. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh. Yes, that's it. Thank you, Kim. Mm. It's a really beautiful podcast. So I hope hope everybody checks that out. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's helpful to hear people's journeys of how they get from point A to B. And like you said, it's never a straight line. But all of these things help form us into who it is we continue to become. Mm-hmm. So Now, since meeting you, I've been hearing you talk about highly sensitive children and being highly sensitive yourself. How would you describe what is HSP? What does that mean to you? Mm, I love this question. Somebody who's highly sensitive, you can see it abbreviated as HSP. Some people say highly sensitive person, highly sensitive child. What we're talking about is someone who has a very sensitive nervous system. It is not something you can diagnose. It's not a disorder. It is literally, though, a sensitivity in the nervous system. And so I want to make two distinctions. There's HSP, highly sensitive people, and then there's empaths. And there can be some overlap, but not necessarily. Ooh, I didn't know that. So somebody who is highly sensitive. Ooh, (laughs) okay, good, good, good. Somebody who's highly sensitive might be really sensitive to things that we physically sense, like the five senses, taste, smell, sound, sight, or touch. So like, for example, if you have a highly sensitive kid, they might be sensitive to texture and it might go across categories. Like maybe it's texture against their skin, like for clothing, and maybe it's also the texture of food. Maybe it's a whole category of foods like crunchy things. Crunchy things are either really good or really bad. Highly sensitive people might have a literal sensitivity to fragrance. A fragrance might be overwhelming or even make them physically ill if they are highly sensitive. Somebody who has sound sensitivity might become so overwhelmed with sound that they either need to plug their ears with their hands or leave a space to have a little bit of relief and a break. And highly sensitive people are often really able to see emotion in other people. They can pick them up. Sometimes they wear them. And what I mean by wear them is it's difficult for someone who's highly sensitive to sometimes know where my feelings start and your feelings start. And so that can be really confusing to highly sensitive. And they have big feelings, really big feelings. And they somebody who's highly sensitive might have big reactions to those big feelings. And one characteristic of almost all highly sensitive kids that I have taught in my 26 years of teaching and of parents who I've interviewed 
taking criticism in any capacity is very difficult because it's so easy to personalize. So those are different things that might make you highly sensitive. Somebody who is an empath has all of that and the ability to actually take on emotions. Mm -hmm. So an empath will not only be aware of how someone is feeling in the room, they will feel it in their own body. And so that's a thing too. And so this would be a kid, it manifests in children a lot, where a kid will, let's say, be fine one minute, and the next thing you know, they're crying, and you ask them why, and they can't tell you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because they might, they might be tuning into some other emotion. So if you just picture like that we all have these little antenna around us in our auric field, we're just picking up things around us. The people who are highly sensitive are much more in tune to all of those energetic changes. Mm-hmm. And there's not one way in which someone might be highly sensitive. That's why it's difficult to diagnose. And it's not a diagnosis. It's just sort of a state of being. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who are empaths or highly sensitive also have some psychic abilities. Sometimes they have an inner knowing or an inner seeing, or one of the clairs, like clairvoyance, clairsentience, those those types of things. And I think it's really easy for people who are highly sensitive to think that they're weird or that there's something wrong with them. But I have a whole community built of highly sensitive people, of empaths. And I think that we start to find each other mm-hmm. as we become more willing to say, oh, this is me. This is, I am highly sensitive or I am an empath. Even if we don't actually outwardly say that, as soon as we start to allow those things to exist in our bodies, we begin to attract other souls who are very much the same. And it feels a lot less isolating. Absolutely. I feel much better now that I surround myself with more people that are empathic. Mm-hmm. Are there ways to help somebody, whether it's an adult or a child, who is highly sensitive with their emotions? Mm-hmm. For sure. So the first step is always to protect your own emotional energetic field. So we each have this mag- electric magnetic field around our bodies. You can measure that in a science lab. Our auras are also inside that electromagnetic field. And they, you can actually measure auras, but the science isn't as reliable and so it doesn't get talked about as much. And so I just want to be transparent in, in naming that. So knowing that we each have this electromagnetic field and knowing that the universe operates on intention, if our intention is to protect our own sovereignty mm-hmm. inside our electromagnetic field, it's really, really a great way to keep your emotions in your electromagnetic field and someone else's in theirs. And the first thing that comes up for people, and it came up for me too, is, wait a minute, if I protect myself, does that mean I'm not going to know all the emotions? And the answer is, you'll still be able to tell all of the emotions, but the big change will be you won't actually experience them Hmm. in your body. Mm Mm-hmm. There's two ways that you can do this really simply, and both are really visual, and one will resonate, and you can do that. So the first way would be to like zip up, 
literally zip up, start at your pubic bone and zip up all the way over your head like you're zipping up a giant parka. And just repeat that three times. And it just, it's immediate relief. For most people, they they often just, <sighs> whoa. I can they feel just, it. I didn't even do it and I could feel that happening. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's really profound. And so you can do this sometimes, like if you see me in my personal life, you'll see me sometimes do this and I'll make it almost look like I'm swatting a fly. But really what I'm doing is zipping up my field. I'm zipping myself up. And so this is like brushing your teeth. We don't brush our teeth once and then call it done. This is something that needs to happen often. Daily at least, if not twice daily. And if you are in emotionally charged situations, it might need to happen in that situation. So like if you have a really high stakes meeting, you might need to zip up right before the meeting. Okay. If if you know that there's going to be a lot of emotions. The second visualization has the exact same effect, but it's just a different visualization. And that's just to bubble up. So just to imagine yourself stepping into this beautiful glowing white bubble of protection, or maybe it's blue for you. You'll find a color that resonates that feels really protective. For most people, it's white, blue, or gold. And then you can bubble up. So you'll have one of those that really hits for you. And then you can do that thing. So that's step one is protecting your own emotions so that that way you're only experiencing your own. You'll still know what everybody else's are. And that step alone is enough to really gain solid ground in managing emotions for kids. The trick is you have to teach it to kids before they are activated. If they're in an activated state, that is not the time to teach them to zip up. They won't take it. Yep. So you just have to kind of ride the wave. And then the second thing is, if we're talking about kids, are we talking about kids? Like if yes, having escalated sure. emotions? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about kids, if you meet a child in a highly activated state, in a highly activated state, it's oh. like adding fuel to the fire. Mm-hmm. So if the child is in a highly activated state, you do want to meet them, but you want to meet them from a very, very calm state and acknowledge their emotions and say, I see you're upset right now. I'm here. I see that you're having a really tough time and I'm here. And just sit with it, acknowledge it, being really, really calm. And they will come to match your energy. So whoever's energy is strongest in the room is where the energy will go. Yeah. And if you make sure that you're the strongest and you're the calmest, eventually they will come to you. The trick is to not have a timeline. It might take 30 seconds. It might take three minutes. If we're talking about three minutes and a crying child, it feels like 35 minutes. Yeah. It really will dissipate. And just the kid knowing that you're there is really soothing. And just knowing that they have license to feel emotions is really soothing. And you know, for adults, it's not that different. Yeah. We have this idea in our heads that if we have a really tough emotion, that it might kill us and it might always be there. Mm-hmm. And so we, we hot potato away our tough emotions. Grief, shame, right? Don't let me feel it. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Don't want that. So we hot potato it away. But the problem is 
the hot potatoing away doesn't mean it's not still in our body Mm -hmm. and it comes out in other ways. And if we allow ourselves, really allow ourselves to experience the full emotion, it always shifts Mm -hmm. in about 90 seconds. Yeah. It's fascinating and it's kind of mind-blowing, even the toughest emotions like grief, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to be clear in saying, I'm not saying that one 30-second sitting with grief is going to cure the grief of a loss of a loved one, but it will cure that moment Mm -hmm. of grief. And then it always shifts into something else. And just being present with, oh, I'm experiencing deep grief. I'm feeling grief. I'm in grief. Oh, well, that's interesting. Now I'm noticing I feel tension in my right shoulder, or I feel a tingle in my belly, or oh, I feel kind of relieved right now. And then not judging whatever it is that comes next. This is so good. (laughs) And when (laughs) I first learned about the 90 seconds, it felt like such freedom for me. Now to know when I met with a really challenging emotion, I now have that in the back of my mind. 90 seconds, like I can do this. It's kind of like being at the gym. You can, yep, 90 seconds or being in a really Mm -hmm. challenging yoga pose. I can do this for 90 seconds. Yeah, Mm. for 90 seconds. And I know you love Abraham Hicks and (laughs) the emotional, is it called the emotional scale? I think it's actually called the emotional freedom scale, but yes, I Will you share a little bit about that? Because we have not touched on that in this podcast either. Yes. So Abraham Hicks is a series of non-physical entities that are channeled by Esther Hicks. And you can look up Abraham Hicks and find tons of stuff on Google. So they talk about an emotional scale that they created in like a pyramid form. And at the base of the pyramid are really heavy emotions. And they're literally lower vibrational emotions, like grief, shame, rage, fear. And then at the very top of the pyramid are the light emotions, the emotions that we all crave, like love, joy, passion. Mm. And then in the middle are all the other ranges. So Abraham Hicks says that the tipping point as we're going on this emotional scale is contentment. If we can get to contentment, we have now tipped the scale and we can start to feel better. So again, it's not the goal to not feel emotions. We must feel them to allow them to to take up space in the world or to heal them, right? But if we can use appreciation as a vehicle, then we can begin to shift emotions. And even if we go up one little band, like maybe if we go from grief, shame, and rage up to disappointment, that's progress. And then just each time we use appreciation as a vehicle, we can move up one more band in the scale. And it might take you the whole day to get there. It might take you a flat second to get there. It's really all about how willing you are to see a situation differently. And then remembering, like for me, appreciation feels active and it feels like something I can do. It's a verb. And so if I'm in the act of appreciating, I can do something. Mm. And when I'm feeling grateful, by comparison, there can be contrast. 
there can be this world in which I'm grateful for this thing that I have, but what if I didn't have it? And so sometimes gratitude will bring out the contrast for people. It does for me occasionally, depending on what we're talking about. But appreciation is really clean energy. Yeah. And it really shifts easily into a better feeling emotion. And I have a free gift. Yes. For your listeners, it's got a graphic of this so you can actually see what that looks like. Yeah. And then it's got a cool way that you can create a feel better fast guide for you that's customized with the things that you actually like. Oh my gosh. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. We will we will You're definitely welcome. put that in the show notes. And thank you for that distinction between appreciation and gratitude, because I've never heard it said that way. But you're right. Appreciation feels, it feels like the doing, like it feels like action involved in it. And I can, I can see that distinction. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Mm, oh my goodness. This has been an incredible conversation. I even more than I could have imagined. So thank you. Are you ready for a few rapid fire questions? I am, but I just want to say, Meg, it's been such a pleasure to share space with you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I just, I can't believe how many, how many overlaps we have. It's so beautiful. So I I really, I look forward to getting to know you even better. I look forward to that as well. Hmm. Okay. What is your favorite book? Oh, my favorite book is Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert. Mm. I just love it. And you're going to Bali soon. Yes, I'm going to (laughs) Bali in February. I can't wait. Mm. I can't wait. And I have another one. Can I have two? Yeah, of course. The other one is The Alchemist. I knew you were going to say that. I have goosebumps. That is my all-time favorite book. And I'm a huge Liz Gilbert fan as well. But The Alchemist is my favorite book in the world. Of course. Of course. Yeah. I read it every January. I just finished my round. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. Oh, we were totally (laughs) meant to meet. Okay. We were. (laughs) What are you currently reading? Currently, I am reading, I'm going to get the title mixed up, but it's something about how to read water. Okay. And I went to Manzanita, Oregon. I was leading a retreat on the Oregon coast and I went to this little bookshop. And I was looking for the water crystal. Dr. Emoto? Yeah. Yes. I was looking for Dr. Emoto's water book. Okay. And I was just like, I wonder if I could find this here. And I found it. I was talking to the owner of the store and she said, oh yeah, here's that book. And here's one I think you might like if you like that. And so she handed me this other little book that says how to read water. And it's so interesting. And it's like literally how to understand what is happening in the world around you based on what water you're looking at, whether it's a puddle or an ocean. It's fascinating. Okay. I'll have to get the name of that. Amazing. Mm, What's one thing you know for sure? Oh, I think the one thing I know for sure is that I am still learning. And every time that I think I have something figured out, I get to learn something else. <laughs> yeah. Mm, taking that one in. Yep. <laughs> and do you have a favorite quote or poem or saying something that just really lives in your heart? 
Hmm. I love words. And so I have a lot. The thing that's really been on my my heart lately is around home hmm. and what is home and how do you create home and is home a place or is it a sense? And so the quote that is on my mind right now is a Maya Angelou quote, which is, I'm looking at my my desk. I have it over here. I long as does every human being to be at home wherever I am. Yes. Mm. My heart is so full right now. This has really been one of my most favorite conversations that I've had. So thank you. Your oh, Instagram you. is at Brenda Winkle, and I'll have that in the show notes. Your website, brendawinkle.com, and then a link to your podcast, the Waves of Joy podcast. I will link that as well. Is there anything else you want to share of how people can connect with you or anything you are putting out into the world right now? Well, I love a DM in Instagram. I love to connect with people. So, you know, feel free to reach out. And, you know, I think the thing that I'm most excited to put out into the world right now is, is in progress, which is I'm creating an offering for highly sensitive moms or moms of highly sensitive kids. Mm -hmm. I'm just so excited about that. So if that resonates with people, I would just love to hear from you because I'm in the research gathering phase around what are the challenges that you most are looking for support in and what would be most helpful in creating some kind of a a product or a coaching program or or something. What and is so just need? reaching out. Yeah. Yeah. What do you need? So that's something that's really lighting me up right now. Okay. Send her a DM. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you so much. Thank you, Meg. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for listening. And if you loved this episode, will you please share it with a friend or two? Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you're sure to never miss a single episode. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM. Women's Voices Amplified.